an important song. That second verse struck me quite hard or heavily this evening. Uh, one of the things that I've been lamenting a little bit more than maybe I should lately is I often think back to a time, a simpler time, and I think for all of the advantages of the time in which we live, tremendous advantages, one of the things that is troubling is how fast everything moves and how everything is so just go, 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 go. And uh, we think about how much can get done in, in, in a week and, and you know, people used to be content to get that done in a month. Uh, and now, if you don't get that much done in a week, then, then you, you haven't had a productive week. And um, yet, one of the things that is interesting is that in this particular hymnal, we don't get exact dates songs are written unless there's a copyright. But the man who wrote the, song, the words to this song uh, was born in 1822 and died in 1894. Um, which means when he said the world rushes on... Uh, <laughs> he, he didn't know nothing yet, right? He hadn't seen anything as to what, what, what kind of life the world would be rushing on to just 100 years or so, 150 years, 200 years after that song was written, 200 years after that song was, uh, after he was born. Uh, we're really rushing on now. But the song is still so applicable. Take time to be holy. Give the time necessary to spend in His Word, to abide with Him, to make friends of God's children and foster those relationships. Foster those relationships with God's people. Help those who are weak. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. Don't run before Him, ahead of Him. Follow your Lord. Looking to Him, trust in His Word. The, the, the song is just as valuable, if perhaps not more valuable today than the day it was written. More applicable today in many cases than when it was written. The same problems, just on a heightened scale, which means we need to be extra vigilant because in such a busy world, when so much is going on, Ironically, the busier things get and the more efficient things get, it doesn't give us back more time, does it? It takes more time from us. More, more begins to be asked of us than ever before. And that means we need to be ever more vigilant to slow down and take the time with the Lord that's necessary and uh, take the time to be holy. So praise the Lord for that. Okay. That ministered to my heart this evening. That's it. We can all go home, right? Not quite. Not quite. Got more work to do. Please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 21. In fact, we're going to try to get through two full chapters of Scripture this evening. So we have much work to do. We've set that ambitious goal. Two chapters of Scripture. Now within these two chapters, we find a message specifically to the king of Judah. Well, throughout our, our time, we've been seeing messages to uh, the elders in Judah as Jeremiah went into the valley, which would eventually be, be called the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Slaughter, the Valley of Tophet, all of those different names. 
We've seen Jeremiah speak to the people. We've seen him speak to the labor, to, to the, the peasants, to the nobles. We've seen him speak to all of these groups. Well, today he gets to speak to the king himself. He gets to, make, to, to direct his message directly to the king. And that's what we're going to be studying. Let's begin that so, so that we can hasten right on through the things that need to be done. In Jeremiah 21, we're going to begin in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent unto him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, saying, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, maketh war against us, if so be that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous works, that he may go up from us. Remember in the last chapter we met this man, Pasher, the son of Malchiah, who was the leader in the temple and was responsible for effectively arresting Jeremiah and causing him the grief and the sorrow that we studied. That was two weeks ago that we studied that, the tremendous grief and sorrow that he experienced. The grief and the sorrow that led him into that, that, that unique kind of schizophrenic prayer, right? Where in one sense he was saying, blessed be the Lord, I will praise the Lord. And on the other sense he's saying, I wish I had not been born. This is that same man. We're introduced to a second man here, however. Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, uh, the priest, who was... Uh, Obviously, the son of a priest, just as Pasher was the son of a priest. And we note that this is not the Zephaniah who wrote the book of Zephaniah. That was Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. We know little of this Zephaniah other than that his father was Maasiah, a priest. Maasiah was quite common name in the Bible. We know that this particular Maasiah that we are looking at was a Levite. There was a Levite Messiah who helped David bring the Ark of the Covenant from Obed-Edom. We know that's not him because that would be way too, too long ago. Uh, there was a Levite Messiah who aided Jehoiada at the coronation of Joash. That was too long ago as well. We'll even see a Messiah come up in Jeremiah 29 in his contention with a false prophet named Zedekiah whose father bears this name. So this name was somewhat prevalent. We don't know much else about him. But they are both sent to Jeremiah by King Zedekiah, the Bible tells us. And now for the first time in this book, really since the beginning of the book, we have an account that roots us in a timeline. To this point, it's been just prophecies, preaching, prophecies. Timeless almost, right? We know that things are happening, but we don't know when. Now we're getting a timeline. And the timeline roots us in the time of Zedekiah. Now, what is surprising about this is that here we are, 21 chapters into the 52 chapters of Jeremiah, and the timeline places us in the final king. Remember, Jeremiah began during the reign of Josiah. And since then, we had Josiah reign, then Jehoahaz reign, then Jehoiakim reign, then Jehoiachin reign, and now we're in the reign of Zedekiah. Now, that's not going to last throughout the entirety of the book. We're going to be going back and forth in time. A couple of chapters down the road, uh, we're going to be in the time of Jehoiakim for a prophecy. So our prophecies are going to be non-linear here soon. Uh, we're going to see these prophecies, and they're not necessarily going to follow one after another. They're more thematic. And if you look at the timeline that I gave you, uh, I gave it to you it, not, not in, in a... In a and not a timeline, an outline. If you look at the outline that I gave you at the beginning of the book, I give you an outline at the beginning of each of my books that, that I preach. Uh, I gave you the outline, and it didn't so much talk about 
order except messages. Message one, message two, message three, message four. We're talking about themes here, and that's what Jeremiah is doing. He's ordering the book in a thematic way rather than necessarily in a linear way as it relates to a timeline. So here we are during the reign of Zedekiah, and we'll find as we continue in this chapter, chapter 22, chapter 23, uh, and into the chapter subsequent until we change our perspective, that this is probably in the time just after Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah or Corniah, just after he is taken to Babylon and Zedekiah is placed into that role as vassal king for the final 11 years of Israel's history, which places us right there in 597 BC at the second deportation, which means that right around the same time that, that, that um, Jeremiah is writing this, Ezekiel is in his late 20s and he's going to Babylon. He's traveling to Babylon while Jeremiah is writing this most likely. And then uh, when Ezekiel turns 30, his ministry will begin and he'll be writing some things and we'll see some interesting um, overlapping of these two prophets as we get farther along in the book. As Jeremiah gets farther along to the point uh, over these next 11 years, he and Ezekiel are both going to be ministering, both going to be prophesying around the same time. So, as we look at this Situation. Zedekiah is now the king. Let me give you a quick summary of what happened with these kings. Josiah was a good king, godly king. Jeremiah began his, reign, his, his ministry in the time of Josiah. When Josiah died, Shalom, also called Jehoahaz, who was two years younger than his brother, Eliakim. Eliakim is also Jehoiakim, right? They have multiple names here. They would often have a, a, a birth name, and then when they became king, they'd be given a new name. Uh, a king name, right? Um, and so we have Eliakim, and Eliakim is older than his younger brother Shalom or Jehoahaz, but the people wanted Jehoahaz to be king. So they actually put Jehoahaz into this place as ruler, even though he was younger than his brother. Now, at this time, the nation was under the power of Egypt, and that did not go very well. So three months into his reign, Jehoiakim, or excuse me, Jehoahaz was replaced by his older brother Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, his older brother, reigned for about 11 years. And this would have been a, a large portion. We'll read about him, as I mentioned, in a few weeks. Jeremiah is going to be speaking to him directly. And so Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years. He is eventually intended to be bound and taken to Babylon. Uh, throughout this time, we find that first deportation in 605. 609 to 598 is Jehoiakim's reign. In 605, there's the first deportation. That's when Daniel left. And Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, 605. So they leave during the reign of Jehoiakim. And they go to Babylon. And they're doing their thing in Babylon while Jeremiah's here. And then Ezekiel's going to be in, in, in a, basically a refugee camp outside of Babylon by the river Kibar. So we have this situation going on. And eventually... Uh, Jehoiakim, again, he's, he's bound and, and, and he's going to be taken to Babylon. But instead he rebels and he attempts to effectively stage a coup. And so they kill him. So now he's dead and his son, Jehoiachin or Jeconiah, is put in his place, but only for three months. And he's put there only for three months because Nebuchadnezzar says, now the guy that's ruling is the son of the man that I killed. His father had a rebellious heart, 
and now his father's dead because I killed him, he's probably not a good person to be ruling. So he is deposed, and that was the son of Jehoiakim. And then the third son of Josiah, Zedekiah, is put into place for the final 11 years from 597 to 586. And at 586 is the final deportation, and that's when everything is done. So that's what we're dealing with here. We're in the days of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was made king at age 21, and he was king until age 32. And the message of Zedekiah the prophet, or excuse me, the, the, uh, uh, Zedekiah to the prophet, to Jeremiah, is this. Inquire of the Lord, he said to Pasher. He asked Jeremiah, Jeremiah, would you please inquire of the Lord, because Nebuchadnezzar, which is the same as Nebuchadnezzar, it's a different name for him, same person, he's making war, and our desire is that the Lord would do a miracle, that he would step in and that he would do a miracle for us and save us from Babylon, do many of his wondrous works, that the king would go away from us. Now, it's not mentioned specifically here, but we find as we continue into a more historical, clear portion of the book that Zedekiah was not a godly king. As a matter of fact, none of the sons or grandson of, of Josiah were godly. Josiah was a godly king. None of his posterity were godly kings. But in his moment of need, as so many people do, he fled to God. And he fled to the prophet of God and asked God for his help. But notice what doesn't come with this request for help. Repentance, acknowledgement of sin, or anything of the sort, right? So God responds to King Zedekiah through Jeremiah in verses 3 through 6. Then said Jeremiah unto them, Thus shall ye say to Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, wherewith ye fight against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans which besiege you without the walls, and I will assemble them into the midst of, your, of this city, and I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and I will smite the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast, they shall die of a great pestilence. That's a big no from God. That's a big absolutely not. I'm, I'm not going to help you. And not only does God say, I'm not going to fight for you, but God says, I'm going to fight against you. Not only does God say, I will not turn back their weapons, but God says, I will turn back your weapons. Any attempt on your part to resist Babylon will be resisted by me. That's a, that's a bummer of a response. He continues speaking directly to the fate of Zedekiah next, and he says this, And afterward, saith the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah the king of Judah, and his servants, and the people, and such as are left in the city from the pestilence, from the sword, and from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those that seek their life, and he shall smite them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, neither have pity, nor have mercy. So Zedekiah himself, the Bible says, will feel the weight of this siege. Those that are left of the pestilence, of the sword, of the famine, those that make it through the plagues, those that make it through the destruction, those that make it through the famine, they will end up in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and they will end up in captivity. There is no mercy here. Then the Lord turns his attention to the people. And he says this in verses 8 through 10. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. 
He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be unto you for a prey. For I have set my face against this city for evil, and not for good, saith the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. What a difference between Deuteronomy chapters 30, 31, 32, where God says, I set before you life and death, life if you obey me, death if you disobey me, right? A blessing and a cursing. And now God says, I set before you life and death, and it has nothing to do with, with, with obedience and disobedience. It's life if you flee the city, death if you stay. Life if you run to your captors for mercy, death if you seek to oppose them. Interesting. If you stay in the city, God says, you will die. But if during the siege you give yourself up to the Chaldeans, they will show mercy and you will only be taken captive. And that's about the best you can hope for at this point. Now, you can imagine from a purely political standpoint just how extreme this message is. We've said to this point that Jeremiah, throughout his persecutions, has not done anything treacherous, treasonous, has not stood against the authority of the land. This is the first time where we see something where, from a purely political standpoint, might be seen as, we could say, treasonous. Where Jeremiah is saying, don't fight. Don't stand up. Don't resist. Those that resist will die. Those that give in to their captors will live. This will not be the only point that such a message is given by the Lord through the prophet. But it's because we've entered a whole new layer of judgment. At this point, the judgment is set. At this point, the decision is made. Now it's time to readjust what it means to align with the Lord. God's will is enacted. God's judgment is set. The, the captivity is coming. They've already experienced two of them. 605 and 598. There's only one more left. 586. So they've experienced two of these captivities already. The third one is inevitable. The city will be burned with fire. God says there's no more preaching of corporate national repentance. We don't see that here. What we see is you've got two choices. Submit to Babylon and live or resist and die. This takes very... It takes a very strong impact, perhaps, when just a few months ago, King Jehoiakim died when he was going to be taken to Babylon, and instead he resisted, and he was killed. And so Jeremiah is effectively saying the same thing that happened to the king will happen to you if you rebel. We continue in verses 11 through 14. And touching the house of the king of Judah, say, hear ye the word of the Lord. So again, this is directly to the king and to his house, Zedekiah and to his household. O house of David, thus saith the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go out like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against thee, O inhabitant of the valley and the rock of the plain, saith the Lord, which saith, who shall come down against us? 
or who shall enter into our habitations? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, saith the Lord, and I will kindle a fire in the forest thereof, and it shall devour all things round about. So God begins by entreating the king of Judah, and he says, You, house of David, be just. House of David, do right. And then he says, and don't think all of you who are outside the city, don't think inhabitants of the valleys, don't think inhabitants of the rocks, that they're not going to come unto us. We're going to be safe. We're going to be fine because you won't be fine. No one's going to be okay. Captivity is coming. Judgment is coming. So God tells them, I'm against you. And if I'm against you, then nothing can stop me. No geographic advantage, no military strength. It's about God rewarding the fruit of their doings. And that leads us into chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sittest upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. Now recall the message that Jeremiah gave when Pasher and Zephaniah came to him with a message from King Zedekiah. Now God commands Jeremiah, go directly to the source, go to the king, go to the house of the king, say this to the king himself. And the message is this, you are the king of Judah. You sit on the throne of David. You are the, 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 the posterity of the great King David. All of you who are within the walls of this house, all of you who make the decisions for this city, execute judgment, execute righteousness, deliver the spoil, do right. Don't do violence to the fatherless, to the stranger, to the widow. Don't shed innocent blood. Injustice was rampant. God says the problem starts at the top. The call by the Lord unto the king is a call for the land to operate in justice and in judgment. Zedekiah has an opportunity here to do something right. Zedekiah has an opportunity to do something that Jeconiah did not do, that Jehoiakim did not do, that Shalom did not do, Jehoahaz. He has the opportunity to establish a kingdom on righteousness. This is the purpose of government to lead the people into morality and righteousness, to establish that which is right, to abolish that which is wrong. Psalm 33 tells us, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And it is true, and it has always been true. And it is as true today as it ever has been. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But what happens when the leaders no longer, not just do right, but what happens when the leaders no longer even understand right? What happens when leaders don't even have a moral compass anymore, much less moral courage? Something that happens in leadership. The first thing that goes is moral courage, where there's still morality in the land, but moral courage is gone. The courage of someone to stand up and say, there's going to be a bunch of people that aren't going to like what I have to say or what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's right. 
That's that that blessed is the land who has a man with moral courage in his, in leadership. When the moral courage fails, that's step number one. But step number two is when the moral compass fails. It's not just that the leaders are now weighing decisions as to whether or not what they know to be right is politically expedient. It's when leaders get to the point where right is wrong and wrong is right. Where they don't even care what's right anymore. Where what they want is what is right. Where what they, what's expedient for them is what is right. That's dangerous. And this is where the nation had gotten. The nation was at the point now where these men, it was not just what was politically expedient. It was not just that they lacked moral courage. It was that they lacked a moral compass. When decisions are based upon expedience, convenience, or even worse, when right is considered wrong and wrong is considered right, the nation is in trouble. And folks, if that doesn't make you feel as though our nation is in trouble, I don't know what will. We are at a tipping point in our land that's been happening now for the past decade or so where moral courage is nearly gone. Not completely gone, but nearly gone. We saw a little bit of moral courage left in the, in, in the fight over the Supreme Court pick, Justice Kavanaugh, where there was a, enough people to stand up and to say, we are not going to allow a egregious injustice to take place for political expediency. There were enough men that stood up and had the moral courage to not let the mob rule this country. And that, that day, regardless of whether or not you agree with the man that got put into the justice position, that day was a victory small victory, but it reflected that there's still a little bit of moral courage left in government. But there's not a lot of that left. That such an egregious injustice came down to just a few people's decision shows that we are on a dangerous path. And the next step in this path is moral compass being gone. And if God does not intervene, if we don't see revival, if God's people don't step up, if this land is not touched with the Spirit of God, we're on the same path that we are reading here in Jeremiah. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation who sees the truths of God's Word and aligns themselves with them. What happens when God's blessing is turned away from a nation? What happens is that God is now unwilling to protect and guard or otherwise bless leaders and peoples. So God calls Zedekiah and he says this, establish justice in the land. Identify the laws of God, the laws that transcend man. Identify those truths which are self-evident and walk in them and live by them. And if you don't, then there will be no blessing. And if they do, verse 4, for if you do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of the house kings sitting upon the throne of David. 
riding in chariots and horses, he and his servants and his people. I said before, the offer is gone. Well, maybe not quite. God has set his heart pretty strongly, but notice what he says here, just briefly. If you'll do this, there will be some measure of blessing still because God responds to man's actions. But if they won't, verses 5 through 9, if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus saith the Lord unto the king's house of Judah, Thou art Gilead unto me, and the head of Lebanon, yet surely I will make thee a wilderness and cities which are not inhabited. And I will prepare destroyers against thee, every one with his weapons, and they shall cut down thy choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations shall pass by the city, and they shall say, Every man to his neighbor, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto the great city? Then they shall answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. If they won't hear God's word, God says, you're, you're Gilead, you're Lebanon to me. That means you're fruitful. But if you won't obey, your trees will be cut down. You will become a wasteland. He says, I swear by myself. God can swear by no greater than by himself, right? And he says, I swear by myself. If you don't walk in my way, you will come to regret it. The house will become a desolation. It was a great compliment that God called them Gilead, the head of Lebanon, the pride of God's pride, the cream that rises to the top. But even so, God says, if you don't obey, I will make you a desolate wilderness. Why? Because God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. The house will be cut down. And people will know that this happened because they did not obey the Lord. Now, this is the... This, this, this statement is in and of itself impacting. But the nature of this impact is seen in the next verse as well. Verse 10, the Bible says, Weep ye not for the dead, neither bemoan him, but weep sore for him that goeth away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. God says, don't weep for the dead. Don't bemoan those that die. If you want to weep, weep for the man who's taken away into captivity. Because they will live out the rest of their days knowing that they will never again see God's promised land. If you want a small little snippet of insight into just how the nation of Israel has always regarded the land of promise, this is a really good one. Not living, living this life apart from the land of promise was worse than death. Weep for the man who walks in chains who turns to look at the land of promise one last time, knowing he will never see it again. Weep for that man, not for the dead man. Knowing that the nation has been removed from the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when the psalmist said, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my tongue cling to my mouth and my right hand lose its cunning. That idea of how important God's city, God's land is to this people, even today. In the mind of the Israelite, to, to, to live completely apart from their land was worse than death. And this would be their fate if they do not repent. And God gives an example of this in the case of 
Shalom. So we see in verses 11 and 12, For thus saith the Lord touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah his father, which went forth out of this place, he shall not return thither any more, but he shall die in the place whither they have led him captive, and shall see this land no more. So Shalom, we call him as well Jehoahaz. He's number two, right there on the left side. He was the first one to reign following Josiah. He's the one that, that was taken into captivity into Egypt three months after the death of his father there in 609 BC. And he would die in Egypt and he would never again see the land of promise. And this is what God says. God says, learn the lesson of Shalom. You will be like him. He went away. He will never come back. So too will the whole land. And God appeals to this illustration of the king in an effort to drive the point home to Shalom's younger brother, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the younger brother of Shalom. Says, your older brother, not oldest brother, but your middle brother, he is gone and he hasn't come back and he's never going to come back. He's going to die in captivity in Egypt if he hadn't already. And, and this, this whole appeal is an appeal to Zedekiah. Do right. Be different than your brothers. Be like your father. Reign in righteousness. Do right. That's the appeal here. Your brother went to Egypt. He has not returned. He will not return. And if you stay on this path, neither will you. And on this note, God denounces the mindset of the land, which excuses injustice and establishes lavishness. Zedekiah gets into office, and, and it seems as though the kings of this time, all of the sons of Josiah and the grandson of Josiah, that they were lavish, that they lived in lavishness even in the time of this difficulty. So God says this in verses 13 and 14. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's services without wages and giveth him not for his work, that saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cutteth him out windows and it is clean, uh, uh, sealed excuse me, with cedar and painted with vermilion. So God says, woe unto the man that builds his house in injustice. And one of the things that he calls injustice is you using someone's services without paying for them. And this has always been an injustice. One of the principles of God that we find throughout Scripture is this principle that the laborer is worthy of his hire. And it is an injustice to not give somebody that which is due for the labor that they, that they do. We're in a society that's constantly in a race to the bottom as it relates to goods and services. How much can I not pay you for your services, right? But the laborer is worthy of his hire. And, and God says one of the injustices of these kings is that they used men's services and then they withheld from them their wages, not giving him the fruit of his labor. Once again, connecting it to the society in which we live. We're living in a society where people are expecting things that are not theirs. An entitlement society. A society which wants to deny a man the fruit of his own labor by taking what is his by the fruit of his labor and giving it to someone that has not earned it, has not worked for it. This is a sign of an unjust society. This is a, a sign of a society that has major problems they do, because we, we have failed to recognize Justice. We have failed to recognize. It's interesting because in the redefined progressive term justice, 
Justice is stealing from you to give to him. In God's term of justice, justice is the way the laborer is worthy of his hire. Justice is the man who worked for it earned it. You give that man his due. Everything's turned on his head. That was the society that Zedekiah entered into as he entered into this rulership role. Very similar in many ways to where we are or where we're headed. Maybe not quite where we are yet, but where we're headed if something doesn't change. So all the while, while they were stripping from people the fruit of their own labor, they were building large, lavish houses, big rooms, many windows, ceilings of cedar and vermilion, which is, which is a red coloring. So they would put cedar along the, the walls and then they'd paint them with, with a very expensive, it was very expensive to do this, red coloring, which was a royal color. The people had it all wrong. They cared about the things that don't matter and they didn't care about the things that did. They cared about luxury and size and comfort, but they did so at the expense of God's justice and morality and righteousness. This is a nation that is depraved. This is a nation that is a culture. When a culture gets these things backwards, when lavishness and comfort is more important than God's justice, morality, and righteousness, the culture is in a decline and it is on its way toward doom. That's what God is telling Zedekiah. We are 11 years out from the end of Israel as we know it. God is saying, you're the last hope, Zedekiah, of turning the ship around. So God asks them in verses 15 through 17, Shalt thou reign because thou closetest, cl- closest excuse me, thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and... Do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thy heart are not but for thy covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. God says, Zedekiah, learn from your father. Who was his father? Josiah. Your father was a comfortable man. He was a comfortable king. He lived in comfort. He ate good food, but he also did justice and judgment. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. There was righteousness in his days, and it was well with him because he wanted to know me. I love this. I love the link here. He doesn't say, because your father wanted to obey me. It was, your father wanted to know me. How do we know God? How do you get to know God? Fill yourself with his will. Fill yourself with his word. Do the things he's asked you to do. You'll learn of him. Josiah wanted to know me. God says. And he still had those things. But here's the problem, Zedekiah. You think that because you're rich, you deserve to rule. You think that because you close yourself in cedar, that's enough to make you qualified to lead. A true leader, Zedekiah, is not a man that closes himself in cedar. 
A true leader is not a true leader because he's wealthy or because he's noble, because of his bloodline. A true leader is a man who does right, who leads his people into that which is right. He says, but your eyes, Zedekiah, have nothing. They they see nothing but your own covetousness. You see leadership as a path to ease. You see leadership as a path to entitlement. You don't see leadership as a responsibility. You see leadership as a means by which to take advantage of those who don't have your power, who don't have your ability to walk all over them. And God says you will fail if you continue on this path. So too will every leader. What makes a good leader? A good leader is not a wealthy man. A good leader is not an economically, materially successful man. That does not make a good leader. A good leader is not established by his birth or nobility, by his family connections. A good leader is a man who understands God's system and aligns himself and those he leads with it. So God says it will not end, it cannot end well with you, Zedekiah. Just like it did not end well for Jehoiakim. This is like a family reunion in the text. So we've talked about Josiah, right? And we've talked about Zedekiah, and we've talked about Jehoahaz. Let's throw Jehoiakim into the mix, shall we? Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This is the oldest brother. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. We've already referenced Jehoahaz, of course, who never saw the land of promise. He was, he was uh, taken out, taken into Egypt, and he died there. God referenced Josiah and how Josiah did right even though he was wealthy. We're writing to Zedekiah and now we have Jehoiakim and God says, look, look at your brother Jehoiakim. He reigned for 11 years and when he died, no one cared. He did not receive the great burial of a king. He's out there thrown against the gates of the city. Literally, it says they killed him and threw him over the wall of the city. That's what the Bible says. They just tossed him over the wall and and let his body lie there. It didn't matter. No one cared. He was an unjust king. He didn't do anything of value. He was a man. And the warning is, Zedekiah, you could be this way too, who closed himself in cedars, who draped himself in vermilion, and who lived in injustice. And so God says, no one lamented him when he died. Remember, this is Zedekiah's brother. He says, Shalom went to Egypt. And he's going to die there. That's that's your your middle brother. Then your oldest brother, uh, Jehoiakim, when he was about to be taken to Babylon, sought to rebel, sought to stage a coup, was killed and thrown over the wall, and he, he, he had the burial like a donkey, just thrown into a pit. No glory, cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. God says to Zedekiah, learn the lessons of your older brothers. Learn the lessons. 
This example lacks only Jehoiachin. And we'll get to him in just a moment. Like I said, it's a family reunion. They all get referenced. So God continues. Verses 20 to 23. Go up to Lebanon and cry and lift up thy voice in Bashan and cry from, pa- from the passages for all thy lovers are destroyed. I spake unto thee in thy prosperity, but thou saidst, I will not hear. This has been thy manner from thy youth that thou obeyest not my voice. The wind shall eat up all thy pastors, and thy lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then shalt thou be ashamed and confounded for all thy wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, that makest thy nest in the cedars, how gracious shalt thou be when pangs come upon thee. The pain is of a woman in travail. God says, I'm trying to warn you, Zedekiah. I spoke when you were prosperous and you would not hear. And God says, you've always been this way. You've always not heard. You've always not listened. Even in your youth, you didn't listen to the Lord. So your pastors, your shepherds, your leaders, they'll be eaten up like the wind. The wind will eat them all up, blow them all away. Your lovers, likely speaking of those with whom he shared that lavish kingly lifestyle, they'll go into captivity And the end of his days would be shame and embarrassment. And instead of a proud people of Lebanon, the strength of the cedars, and Lebanon is often used to speak of pride because the cedars were so big and the wood was so strong. And so that that, that, the picture of Lebanon is that picture of strength, is that picture of of life, is that picture of vibrancy, is that picture of, of majesty. And he says, you're Lebanon, you like Lebanon, you will be cut down. You will be brought low. You will be in pain as a woman in travail. Instead of the proud people of Lebanon, they'll be forced to be gracious to their oppressors. He says, the only grace you have left will be the grace when you are begging for your life. When Babylon comes and knocks down your walls and burns your cities. How humble then they will be. So God finally turns his attention at the last to the last unmentioned king. That being Jeconiah, here called Coniah, who had probably, as we mentioned, just recently been taken into captivity. We're probably, ta- we're probably in the transition phase between Coniah and Zedekiah here, which is why... Jeremiah is making this message at this time. And so we read the final seven verses of the text, verses 24 to 30. He says, As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. Even if Coniah was something really special to me, the signet on the right hand of God, I would still pluck you all up. He says, And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out and thy mother that bare thee into another country where ye were not born. And there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 
Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. He says, Look at Coniah. Coniah, who was the son of Jehoiakim, who will see no children. He will not have children. No one from his line will sit on the throne of David. He's that final picture, the final picture of desolation, brought into captivity, no lineage, no seed to carry on his name, no seed to carry on the line of David through him, childless, lack of prospering. And this is intended to be a message again to Zedekiah. This is where you're all going if you don't do right. Now, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction than I had written down for our um, application this evening. The first thing I'd like to remind us, and I know that this was hard. This was kind of hard stuff. Um, but remember, first of all, God is not mocked. At the beginning of chapter 1, we saw, we saw Pasher. And remember where this started. This whole thing was a message when Zedekiah, probably right at the beginning of his ministry, goes to Jeremiah and says, my family didn't regard you much, but I'm going to ask you, will you entreat God for favor? And of course, God comes back with a scathing rebuke because Zedekiah, while he's doing that, is not doing anything else for God. And that, that's mocking God. God is not mocked. No doubt the, the king thought back, say, to the time of Hezekiah when the, the Assyrians had surrounded them. Excuse me, the Syrians. And Hezekiah takes the letter, the threat from Sennacherib and lays it before the Lord in the temple. And the next day, the entire army is dead. And there was a great victory in the days of Hezekiah. But see, there's a major difference between when Zedekiah thinks of the days of Hezekiah and himself. And the difference was Hezekiah was a godly king who loved the Lord. And Zedekiah was a rebellious king who loved himself. For the king to utterly ignore the word of the Lord and to mock and scorn and even allow the prophet to be physically persecuted only to turn around in his day of need, send the same man who threw him in jail and put him in the stocks, and then to ask through that man for the intercession of the prophet in the, uh, to God that God would repent and would deliver the nation is an entitled request of expectation that in their hour of deepest need, God would be forced to deliver the nation even though they did not change their attitude in any way, shape, or form toward God. But it simply doesn't work this way. Now let's be clear. God is unfailingly merciful. God is ready to forgive. God is eager to bless. God is slow to anger. But God is God, and He is not beholden to us. You cannot manipulate God into blessing you. And God certainly will not be mocked. You know what I mean by that? Have you ever had a situation where someone has done something, perhaps, of course, what comes to my mind is my children. They're such, they're such great illustrations. And my children, one of my children comes up to me and they've done something wrong and I look them in the eye and I explain to them what they've done wrong and they look at me and they say, Dad, you're right. And they, they, they ask for mercy and I give them mercy and they go and they do the same thing again. And I, 
and I, I've just been mocked. They are now banking on my mercy while disregarding my desires. They are manipulating me into mercy, and, and it's, it's the glory of a man to show mercy. I love to show mercy to my children. I much prefer to show mercy than to, than, than to show the rod. It is the glory of me as a father to be able to look at my child and show them mercy. But then when they take that mercy and they abuse it, they're mocking their father. And that's what it means, that God will not be mocked. God will not be manipulated. God will not be mocked. His goodness is ready. It is free, but it is reserved for those who are coming to him in humility as the whole biblical record testifies. So Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We reap what we sow. What we get out of the life that is found in God is dependent upon what we invest in it. And we cannot manipulate God. We cannot fool God. We cannot trick God. God will not be mocked. If we invest in the death of sin and selfishness, it is unreasonable to think that we will somehow reap the fruit of life, isn't it? God's system of blessing and joy is not a system that we can twist and manipulate to live our lives however we want and then demand or expect that God is going to clean up our messes. He is not our divine houseboy. He is not there to fix our messes for us when we screw up. That's not God. He is not the kind of father who's going to say, well, if you clean up your mess, then you can go out and play. And so we shove everything on our floor into the closet and slam that door and uh, get that door closed. And we say, okay. And the father says, you can go out and play and then opens that closet door and you know, everything comes out. God is not that kind of a God. He's, he's not going to play by those rules. If a parent realizes that the intent of the command has been mocked, then there have to be consequences. And if we want to bear the fruit of the Spirit of God, if we want to be able to rest in the spiritual success unto which God has called us, if we want God's mercy, if we want God's blessing, then we must do it His way. There are no cheat codes. There are no corners that can be cut. If you want the life that comes from abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit, there's only one way to have it. Abide in Christ and walk in the Spirit. God cannot and will not be mocked. King Zedekiah came and said, give us the blessing that comes with being the nation of Israel, even though we have no intention to repent or obey. And God says, not only will I not give you what you seek, but I will oppose you at every turn. And finally this evening, let's extend this once again to government. The Bible says God scorns the scorner, but he gives grace to the lowly. The Bible says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Bible says in Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If there is any hope for this country, it's certainly not found in government, right? We know that. Government is downstream of culture. Government reflects culture at least in a 
at least in our economy. Why? Well, because we vote our leaders in, right? In, in, in a different scenario, a different system, a monarchy, it's not necessarily that way. But in our country, our government is a reflection of our culture. Our government is downstream of culture. And you know what? In our country, culture is downstream of the church. The weakness of the church has brought about the culture that we see today. And the culture that we see today has brought about the government that we see today. So if we want to see change, it will happen at the level of revival. It will happen when God's church becomes effective again. It will happen when we as God's people do our part the way we have been called to do. It will happen when, as we do so, the Spirit of God does His part in response to our willingness. But that being said, we still have a representative form of government. That being said, there are still opportunities for us to have influence. And we voted in, in an election in November of this year, and um, I encouraged you at that time to go out and to be a part of that process, as God has given us the right to be a part of that process. In a country that has, has allowed us to be a part of that process, we ought to take full advantage of that right. But let us remember this. That the blessing of God upon a nation comes when its leaders do right. They may not regard the God of the Bible in the way that we do, but do they regard morality? Do they regard righteousness? And this is what we pray for, right? We pray that God would confirm the hands of our leaders in righteous decisions. They may not call them righteous decisions, but that is what we seek. And as we have our hand in this government in whatever way we can, that is what we ought to seek because that is what God can bless. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. And there is mercy to be found and we thank God for it. But we walked through several principles of government leadership this evening. And while we certainly have no um, reason to believe that our country is any longer what we would call a Christian nation, while, in fact, it is a, uh, a, almost a joke to see in God we trust on our currency today. Simultaneously, there can still be the blessing of God upon a country when the leaders within that country identify righteousness, justice, integrity, and walk in it. And may God help us to be a part of that process in whatever way we can to seek for that within our leaders, to pray for that within our leaders. Because from what we read this evening, our country is far more reflective of Israel at the time of Zedekiah than Israel at the time of Josiah. And, re and just know that when that happens, it is a sign of a decline in culture that cannot lead to anything good if something doesn't change. So it's a reminder that because God will not be mocked on an individual level and on a, on a, a, a cultural level, we need to pray for our leaders. We need to do our part as the Lord would allow us. 
to bring about whatever we can do to find leaders, not necessarily that are lined up with us doctrinally in every way, shape, or form, but leaders that identify righteousness, truth, morality, and that align themselves with it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.